Well, let's see. September we preached most of the book of James. We sort of did hit and miss across the pages of James. And then in October we took on the book of Job. So we've, we've been in a couple of specific places in the last couple of months. Today and to next week, for the next two weeks, we'll be talking about the topic of generosity. I'm the leadoff hitter, and Melissa is the cleanup batter. She'll come in next week, and what you will get between the two of us are two ministers who are thinking about what generosity is about and trying to put it in, in the framework in which we can appreciate the quality of, of generosity. I have a friend, he's a minister in fact, who is the most generous human being that I know. Bar none, out of all of my friends, I have seen him over and over and over again act with generosity, and it's startling. Let's read a, a scripture that's about this. It's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Friend, who set me up to be a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told, told them, the whole group, told them a parable, a story. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, What should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger barns. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have an ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. There it is. It's in the Bible. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Jesus could tell this story today in our own time and in our own culture, and we should listen and pay attention to this. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And then you are not able to do so small a thing as that. Why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith, and do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying. It is the nations of the world that strive after all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. 
Instead, strive for the kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, O little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your heart is, there will your treasure be as well. Most of you know the name Truett Cathy. He is the fried chicken king in America, I believe. And some of you know who Ken Blanchard is. He's a uh, management consultant. He's a business consultant. And they teamed up together to publish a book titled The Generosity Factor. It's a fictional story about a successful and wealthy business executive based on Truett Cathy's life. It is his way of telling his own story. The book is a modern-day parable about the price we pay for living our lives based on a philosophy of accumulation and self-interest. It's a story about the joy we receive from living a life not based on self-absorption, but rather on generosity. It is flipping it on its head. It is playing with the natural order of things in this particular way. There's a character in the book known as the executive, who is an owner of 800 auto parts stores and whose story is told in a New York newspaper. And in the interview, the executive claims the greatest joy in his life is his ability to give to others. That story came out. It was read by thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. And one of them was a Manhattan broker. And he was so intrigued by the comment, his comment in the newspaper article, that he gave the executive a call. He just picked up the phone to call him. And in the end, this Manhattan broker traveled to Denver to spend a weekend with the executive. What the broker learned eventually changed his life. Um, it's a transformational moment where we're going down one path and we come to some clarity about something and we turn around and make a radical change in our lives. It's transformative. It's an amazing moment when that moment comes to you. This executive shared something so transformative that it turned the man's life around. And what he shares, Kathy calls the generosity factor. The generosity factor. The generosity factor is the joy that is turned loose when we give more of our time, more of our talent, and treasure to God by serving others, by giving to others. It is this transformational experience that we go through by letting go of the things that we have held so tightly and beginning to find ways to make those things of greater use. Here's what Jesus said, for your heart, where your heart is, your treasure will be also. That's the line. It's sort of like the punchline to the story. You go through the whole story, you understand the story, and then at the end there's this aha moment. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And that places us squarely in front of the real question that he seems to be raising. The question is, where is your heart? That's the question. What you do with it is the answer. Jesus helps us realize our hearts and treasures are inexplicably linked. 
There is a connection between your heart and your pocketbook, he seems to be saying. Find one, you'll find the other. We could have a, a, I don't know, a a dare you kind of moment to pull out your checkbook or your, your list of accounts and figure out where it is that you're spending your money, that would be a a truth or dare kind of moment. Well, it's interesting. This story in the Greek offers us uh, a key to unlock the passage, and it is in the word treasure. In the Greek, the word for treasure is thesauros. Maybe it's a word you've heard. In its noun form, it means a place of safekeeping, a thesauros. Another example of how the word is used is in 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 4, verse 7. We hold this treasure, this thesauros, in earthen vessels. I think of those clay pots that come north out of Mexico. I, I grew up in Texas, and we had tons of those. The treasure is being held in a clay pot, is what the Scripture tells us. This treasure in earthen vessels. That's you and that's me. We hold, we embody the treasure. The treasure is kept in us as earthen vessels. More likely, though, you've heard the word thesaurus used in another context. Ever needed just the right word? Or maybe you're writing a term paper or you're writing an email and you need just the right insightful word. And so you may need to go to Roger's thesaurus for the alternative choice of words. It's kind of fun to do every now and then when you're really bored to pick a word and then go see what other words cling to that or associated it. Dr. Peter Roger wrote his first draft of this massive book in 1805. It was his book alone. It was his private treasure book of words. Unbeknownst to to others around him, for years and years and years he had this available to himself, even before uh, the dictionary was put together. Not until he was 73 did he decide to do something with it. And so he decided to reveal its existence and then to publish it. And since 1852, Roger's Thesaurus has never been out of print. Never. It grew in volume, it grew in size and scope, to which uh, satirical comedian Stephen Wright raised the question, what's another word for thesaurus? (laughs) Jesus told a story to help us illustrate this principle. Two little stories, both in Matthew's Gospel, are told as treasure stories. They're categorized as treasure stories. In the first story, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who's plowing a field owned by someone else. He is moving along with a plow and thunk, it hits something that does not give. It's very solid and he stops and he gets his little shovel out and he begins to pull this whatever it is that has stopped his plowing and to pull it open and to see what it is. He was expecting a big rock. Wanda had me dig a a hole and pull out a chunk of concrete the other day in her garden. You know, we're in this house new. We don't know where all the little chunks of concrete are buried. We found one. It wasn't going anywhere for a good long while. 
And so he pulls this thing open, he uncovers it, and what he discovers is a treasure chest. He has accidentally come across someone else's treasure that's buried there. And what did he do? He took his shovel back out and he pulled the dirt back on top of it and hid it. It was already in the ground. It was hidden in the ground. And then he went home and he gathered up as much of his assets as he could gather. And he made an offer on the land and he bought it. And now the treasure was his. He went from being a relatively poor man doing a a field of of crops on top of somebody else's land. That's an indication he didn't have as much money as we might think he did. And now he became a rich man. And in the second story, the kingdom of God is like a merchant who searches and finds a pearl of great price. He is an expert in pearls, and he understands what value looks like, and he recognizes it. And he too goes and he sells much of what he owns in order to buy this pearl of great price. He's not poor, but he's rich. And he becomes even richer by seizing this opportunity. Rich or poor, skillful or just plain lucky, each man, each woman finds something of great value and sells all that they have in order to make the treasure his or hers. Each person finds something that makes everything else that is owned trivial by comparison. And so they don't think at all of trading off these inconsequential things that they have in order to buy the treasure. If the kingdom is like that, then it is rare, but it is attainable. If the kingdom is like a treasure... It's not so common to find it, and yet it is available to those of us who make the choice to obtain the treasure. Such is the treasure of the kingdom of God in Christ. Jesus is the thesauros, and when we find him, we want to give him the very best that we have to offer, because he's too valuable to insult with our meager, half-hearted gifts. Too many times we try to placate God with an occasional tip, something like a tip, offered for the services we receive for our relationship through Christ. Here is the assumption that you might take and play with and nurture it and see what it means to you. The assumption is, by giving, we receive. By taking, we lose. In this way, generosity is paradoxical. It goes against the grain of what we assume we can only gain by keeping close at hand, by seizing it and bringing it in close. But that's not how it works. And the ancients, the ancients who were full of wisdom, had it differently. They talked about this almost in unison. The Hebrew prophet says it plainly. One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but ends up impoverished. The Buddha taught that giving brings happiness at every stage of its expression. The Hindu proverb would say, they who give have all things. They who withhold have nothing. 
And Jesus said, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I don't know who you go to for your wisdom uh, to live by. But the ancients are all in agreement about this. Holding it back holds us back from joy and purpose. Notre Dame did a study uh, uh, called The Science of Generosity, a nationally representative survey of Americans' practices and beliefs about generosity with hundreds of interviews around the country, and here are the results. First, the more generous Americans are, the more happiness, health, and purpose in life they enjoy. Secondly, the correlation between these things is sufficient to believe generous practices cause enhanced personal well-being. You feel better about yourself. Something sparks in you about the rightness of this after you've acted upon this impulse. This is not accidental or simply an artifact of reverse causal influence. Third, they found wise writers, philosophers, religious teachers, sages, and mystics have been teaching about the paradox of generosity for thousands of years, and empirical social science research only confirms what has already been known for a long, long time. It's noteworthy that generosity can't be faked in order to achieve some other self-serving end. You recall the story of Jesus in the uh, temple, and it appears that he's standing along the edges or in the back somewhere, and the rich man comes in and pours coins, and what you have to visualize in your brain is this brass, almost like a tuba, this brass receptacle. And when you transfer your dollars into nickels, it makes a huge clatter. And every head in the place turns to see who it is that just gave a, a whole bundle of coins, and it and it gives the appearance of something that it's not. Generosity cannot be counterfeited. Fake generosity does not make us happier, healthier, or more uh, purposeful in life. It must be authentic. Generosity is like love in this way. It's just like love. True love has a beauty to it, and artificial love quickly uh, disappears. One of the best ways to be truly generous is to simply start behaving in this way. New beliefs and insights are frequently provoked by doing, and we perfect our new habits by practicing. On the flip side of all of this, if you want to know what the counter-sermon is about, it would be that one can choose to be miserly. Generous, miserly. One or the other. We're typically one or the other. The word miser is related to the word miserable. No small accident. No one wants to be miserable, but that's the result by holding the gifts of life back. Here's the uh, truth in, in preaching paragraph for you. Most of you know what time of year this is in the life of the church. This is the time of year where we talk about stewardship. We talk about giving and we, we talk proactively about the, the mission to build a program of ministry 
in the coming year. And committees have been at work at this, and different ones have been at work. And this whole idea is, is the notion that we think this is a topic that should be talked about in congregations. This idea of, of our giving, this idea of our sacrificial giving even. It's the time of year when we are actively pulling together a ministry plan for the year. It's the time when we encourage one another in this shared ministry plan. It's a plan that no one can do alone. Big projects take our whole commitment, our whole willingness to move on them. This is a year of transition, don't you know? When we're thinking about how we will be the church now and into the future, I encourage you to think about this season as an on-ramp for possibilities and to think about what role will you play in this collective community of faith. This is a plan built on our partnerships with one another and collectively our partnership with God. I have a blessing for you to close this sermon. It's very simple. Happy, healthy generation, uh, generosity and joy. Amen.